You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Bible for Normal People. Before you do anything right now, if you're not driving, I would encourage you to just hit pause, go to wherever or you get... pull bo- over. Oh, yeah, sure. Pull over. Pull over right this minute. Now. And if you wouldn't mind, pretty please, cherry on top. Go and pre-order the book, Love Matters More, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus. My goal, I'll tell you straight up, my goal is to sell enough copies that they let me write another one. That's it. That's the goal I have. So, help help me uh, be able to write more books. But no, honestly, (laughs) I think this book, for me, the message that Love Matters More couldn't come at a better time. And as we get some feedback from people who have read the first chapter, which you can get free um, at lovemattersmorebook.com. Um, the feedback we're getting is that this is really helpful during this time of being able to talk about things that we fundamentally disagree with with our friends and family in a way that's still loving and uh, how love matters more than pretty much everything else. So, I would encourage you, if you can, do it now. Before the book comes out September 8th, it helps us. Um, go to lovemattersmorebook.com or just go straight to wherever you buy books and order it. Yeah. All right, what are we talking about today, Pete? Our readers have done this before. They've ordered books. That's they know right. how to do this, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, hey, folks, uh, very excited about today's interview. The uh, topic is telling the truth about Jesus' wife. Yeah, you heard that right. Our, uh, yeah, so, sort of sounds weird, but of course the podcast will clarify that. But our guest today is Ariel Sabar. He is... Um, an award-winning investigative journalist, and I like that, investigative journalist. And he, he's written stuff for like Washington Post, New York Times, and The Atlantic. And uh, he put out a book that just came out recently called Veritas. Veritas, by the way, is the motto for Harvard, which is really sort of important here. There's a double meaning. But uh, Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus's wife. So that was pretty cool, huh, Jared? Yeah, I I like that he's an investigative journalist because it felt like we were talking to like a detective or something throughout yeah. the episode, which was really intriguing and cool. I felt like I was in a Dan Brown novel or something. But yeah, I well, think what it was, was he investigating? What was he investigating? So it's this interesting story, and I asked my wife about it uh, after we had uh, recorded with Ariel. You know, do you remember this idea or this thing floating around that Jesus had a wife? And she said, yeah, I kind of remember that. I was like, well, the, we, we kind of interviewed yeah. the guy who was like at the heart of that story. And uh, and she was really impressed. So, yeah, it, it's kind of figuring out. It's, it's all these clues, but it's also bigger than that, which is why I think we were interested in right. interviewing Ariel, because it really has to do with truth finding. And for those of us who grew up thinking that historical accuracy of the Bible was kind of central we kind of we get into that, and we talk about, well, what does that mean, and how do you find those truths, and what happens when things kind of go sideways? And it's also about just the world of, of in this case, biblical scholarship. And, you know, I mean, in today's world, Jared, there are, there's a lot of distrust about experts. Right. You know, elite experts, and they don't know what you can't trust and can't trust them. And what safeguards what experts do is usually some form of being accountable to other experts. And and when that process is followed, it helps to say, it's never perfect, but it helps to safeguard the integrity of the scholarly pursuit. But the whole point is that in this case, it wasn't followed. 
Right. Right. And right. That, that's exactly what Ariel was investigating. And, and uh, you know, he tells the story at the, at the beginning, so he explains it all. And then we get into some of the, the nuts and bolts of it. And it's, you know, it relates to biblical studies directly because biblical scholars are basically, see, it's a biblical, trained biblical scholars are historians. That's basically what they are. They're right. trying to talk about what happened, when did it happen, who wrote it, why did they write it, what, what's the meaning of this text, not for me today in my life, but for back then. Yeah, it's just a lot of interesting stuff and a lot of angles on this. Yeah, well, I'm getting excited all over again, so I think we should just jump into the conversation. I know, it was, it was really yeah. fun to do this interview and, and to have uh, a journalist on it. was great. All right, let's get into it. One person reading a gospel text in the 6th century may read it in a completely different way than someone reading it today. And that's okay. You can go to that same text and draw some completely different meanings from it. And on some level, each of those meanings, at least in my view, is valid. I think what's dangerous is when a theoretical way of encountering texts is also used for historical investigation. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, welcome to the episode, Ariel. It's good to have you. Thanks for having me. So we have an interesting story to hear about, just a fascinating tale of biblical scholarship and in intrigue and investigative journalism. Can you give us just the three to five minute synopsis so we can get a grasp on the characters of this interesting story? Yeah, sure. how a journalist made a biblical scholar look bad. Oh, I, well. This, I have a sense that, that that's very, very, I don't even know why we have you on. This is very threatening to me personally, because you might find out something that I did wrong. Well, and, and, I, and, I, and I would just, you know, I, I think the, the purpose of the book isn't, isn't to make a, a biblical scholar look bad. Um, I know, of it, course, it's a, yeah. It's to tell, I think, a, a really interesting story. And, um, and then the story begins back in terms of the public version of the story begins back in September of 2012 when a distinguished professor at the Harvard Divinity School, a woman named Dr. Karen Kinn, goes to Rome for the uh, 10th International Annual Congress for Coptic Studies. So Coptic is basically the language of, of Egypt's earliest Christians. Um, it is a language in which some of the earliest surviving copies of the Gospels survive. And every four years, the top scholars of Coptic gather in some interesting place. Sometimes it's Egypt, sometimes it's Rome. This time it was Rome, uh, actually uh, at a fraternal order right across from the Vatican. And the, the she makes a presentation that has a sort of kind of a bland title. It's something like a new Coptic gospel fragment. And so, you know, everyone in the room was like, oh, this, this could be interesting, or it could be like a lot of the presentations we hear every four years where there's some small fragment of, you know, 
the Gospel of John, um, you know, one of the one of the Gospels that, that where there are a lot of survive, you know, relatively large number of surviving copies. It's always interesting, um, but you know, they they don't expect um, the bombshell that's about to drop because there's no sort of forewarning, and the bombshell that drops the Karen King's paper at, uh, that she gives at the conference is about this very small scrap of papyrus. It's about the size of a business card. Um, and papyrus, uh, for those who, who don't know, it's, it's a sort of ancient writing service made of the dried and, and pressed leaves of a plant that used to grow um, alongside the Nile in Egypt, and on which, again, many of the earliest surviving copies of the Gospels are written. So she has a, a little piece, a little fragment that she's discovered with eight lines of Coptic on the front. And um, sort of the bombshell line, the, the, the showstopper, is the very, very middle line in which Jesus uh, is said to utter the words, my wife. So the line itself says, Jesus said to them, quote, my wife. And this is, you know, this is important. You know, Karen King does not make the claim that, there, that, the, that the fragment has any value as sort of biography. She's not making the claim that this fragment tells us that the historical Jesus was married. But what she does claim is that sometime in the second century, you know, within 200 years of, of, of Jesus' life, there was a group of Christians somewhere who believed that Jesus had a wife. And that would still be historic because there are no surviving manuscripts um, from antiquity that present this version of, of, of a married Jesus. And in her interpretation, and, and the woman that Jesus is described as being married to in this fragment is, is, uh, is Mary Magdalene. And so we have, this, we, we have the, the fourth line that says, Jesus said to them, my wife. In the, in the fifth line, it appears as though Jesus continues to speak about Mary Magdalene. He says, she is able to be my, my disciple. Uh, then he, then Jesus appears to curse people who are effectively dissing his wife, um, sort of questioning it, questioning her her worthiness to be a disciple. And then he says that in sort of the last surviving line that uh, essentially that I live with her, that I dwell with her. So if there's sort of any doubt about whether this is you know a human uh, wife or something more spiritual, the claim to to sort of be dwelling with her suggests that this is a human Mary. Um, rather than say, you know, the church or something. This and this is Karen King's interpretation. Yeah. So Ariel, yeah. this is across the street from the Vatican. Correct. And she's claiming to have this manuscript, the size of a broken up manuscript. The sentences are complete. That claims that Jesus had a wife, and it was Mary, and also a disciple. Right. That his wife was able to be not only was was Mary Magdalene, and this is again Karen King's interpretation. Uh, you know, she's a very learned scholar. She's, you know, sort of at the top of her field, has, I think, I believe she has, the, she holds the oldest endowed professorship in all the United States, like in any subject. So, very distinguished scholar, very, um, very, um, you know, sort of a, a dazzling interpreter of, of sort of non-canonical scripture, um, scripture that did not make the New Testament. Um, and so, this would certainly fall into that category if it were authentic. And so, in her reading, what we have here is a dialogue between Jesus and the disciples, the disciples begin by, by, by sort of suggesting that there's a controversy over Mary. There's a controversy over Mary is worthy of, of discipleship. And Jesus responds by, by telling him two things. He says, my wife. And then he says, she is able to be my disciple. So sort of in, 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 in sort of very quick succession, um, this papyrus sort of, I mean, read in a certain way, demolishes two of the central pillars of, of sort of Catholic tradition. Uh, one is that uh, Jesus was a lifelong celibate bachelor. Number two is that he did not select uh, women uh, among his sort of closest uh, followers, um, among the twelve certainly. So then we have this fragment, and and I 
one of the things that was intriguing to me when I was reading through your book was I remember this becoming kind of a shockwave through uh, at the time as someone who was studied in religious schools and all these other things. This was definitely something that came across my news feed, so to speak. I don't know if there were news feeds back eight years ago. I don't know what's happening eight <laughs> years ago, but um, you know, this came across my desk, so to speak, and thought it was really interesting. But what I think is the kind of the twist of the story is it didn't turn out to be what we all maybe thought it was. So, can you maybe finish the rest of that story? Because I have some questions about the process of truth-telling and how we figure out the authenticity of these kinds of things. Sure. I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, I was on I was on assignment for Smithsonian Magazine back in 2012. The Smithsonian, which is the magazine affiliated with the Smithsonian Institutions here in D.C., you know, have a fa- famous magazine. They cover a lot of scholarship, uh, sort of everything from science to history. And they had gotten sort of a heads up that this was coming. So they assigned me a feature story and they sent me to see Dr. King in Harvard sort of a few weeks before her big announcement. And then they also sent me to Rome. And so I was actually the only reporter in the room when she makes this announcement to colleagues. And I described this sort of um, just really remarkable scene in the room when she presents her paper where, you know, almost really instantly in in the Q&A after her 20 minute talk, her 20 minute paper, the top scholars in Coptic and in, in, and in the sort of non-canonical gospels who are in the room immediately are like, have, have a lot of questions. Like there's, there's almost instantaneous, serious doubt about the fragment. And, you know, I think the first problems were, became evident the moment they, the, these scholars saw photos of the papyrus. Now, interestingly, Karen King said that her computer had, had broken down on the way to Rome, and so she wasn't able to show photographs. Um, which which upset a lot of the scholars in the room because when you're looking at a when you're judging the authenticity of a manuscript, you really have to you really have to physically see it because it's in the you it's have in to the look, look at it. Yeah, you have to look at yeah. the handwriting. <laughs> you have to look at the application of the ink. You have to look at the condition of the papyrus itself. You know, what King is a textual scholar. She's interested in in what things in what what sort of the message is. What is the what what is the what does the text say? But when you're evaluating authenticity, you really have to look at the material aspects of of a manuscript. And because we are now sort of in the in the connected age, um, some of the scholars who had like iPads and laptops were able to get online and notice that even before they were presented the, with images of the papyrus, the rest of the world were being shown those images via the media. Harvard had given images to, you know, not only Smithsonian Magazine, my story was up almost instantaneously, but also the uh, New York Times and the Boston Globe. And so they start going on their phones, their iPads, and even during her presentation are seeing images of the papyrus for the first time. And what they're seeing um, is disconcerting. They're seeing handwriting, Coptic handwriting that looks like no other ancient Coptic handwriting they've seen. The look of the ink is a little funny. The, they're seeing, they're noticing grammatical and spelling errors in the Coptic that don't look like grammatical and spelling errors that a native speaker in antiquity would have made. And there's also the also the, the, the shape of the fragment. It's like it's 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 almost perfectly rectangular. And if you know anything about the surviving pieces of, of papyrus that sort of that are sort of you know that have managed to survive the hundreds of years of history, they're usually pretty ragged. I mean, I describe them in the book as looking like you know, sort of the jagged coastline of, of, of a country. They don't really, there's not really any symmetry to them. And so it's sort of suspiciously rectangular and you've got that sort of showstopper phrase billboarded um, dead center in the papyrus. So those are, even, even within the first few hours, you have the top people in her field, her own, her own colleagues who are, who are asking some pretty sharp questions about, about the papyrus. So, so my wife was like 
almost literally the centerpiece of the this fragmentary text. And again, if I'm hearing you right, um, Ariel, the um, there is enough written there in this text to suggest things, but in and of itself, it's really not clear what it's saying. Right, and that's part of the the genius of it, in a way. Um, and we'll, yeah. I think we're going to get into the, the issue of, the, of a forgery in a second. But it's really like, I mean, I think I describe it in the book as kind of like of a Mad Lib or a kind of Rorschach uh, test, <laughs> where because the, 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 the fragment is missing all of its margins, we don't know if, if it were an authentic text. So the presumption is it's because it's missing all of its margins, there's, it's essentially resected from the, from the, or, or broken off from the center uh, of some much larger page, which itself was part of some larger manu- you know, codex or ancient book. So we don't know what comes before it. We don't know what comes after it. We don't even know necessarily how each of the lines begins and ends. So that leaves a lot of room for interpretation. And it really, you know, the, what, what's the genius of this is that that if we presume it's a forgery, and again, I, I know we're going to get to this more <laughs> later on, but if we presume it's a forgery, which is now, you know, sort of almost really unanimous among, among scholars, um, what the what the, the genius is is that that depending on which scholar you give it to, you're going to get a very different interpretation of what precisely is being said. Yes, right, right. Well, let's get to that the the forgery part of the story because I think that's where questions about truth and process, and I think connections to what we're seeing in our day and age around media and what gets shared and what gets authenticated. I think there's some clear parallels here. Sure. So, you know, there's this initial wave of questions. And, and I think, you know, what was interesting is that this having broken in kind of 2012, it was a period in which a lot of scholarship uh, and scholarly discussion was moving online. So in the past, you'd have this glacial process where, you know, a scholar would take many months to publish their article in a peer-reviewed journal, then it would take another year for uh, for scholars to, to respond and, you know, in, in sort of a, a civilized way to the arguments that the first scholar was making. And now, because of, of the blogosphere and the fact that a lot of young scholars are, are taking to the blogosphere, you had like this very robust online debate where everyone was kind of all these you know scholars from young upstart you know grad students to more experienced scholars were weighing in in kind of in real time, kind of crowdsourcing scholarship, trying to figure out what was really going on with this fragment. And at the beginning, there there were some there was some debate, and one of the first real breakthroughs in 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 trying to figure out what might have happened here, was there was a, there was a scholar in the UK named Francis Watson was looking at this and he's like, you know, a lot of these phrases look a lot like the Gospel of Thomas. And the Gospel of Thomas is, is a non-canonical text, 114, sort of a list of 114 secret, what were called secret sayings of Jesus. Some scholars think it's like as early as the first century, other, others think it's later than that. But it's a very well-known non-canonical uh, text and it, it struck Dr. Watson that, that a lot of the phrases uh, looked a lot like the Gospel of Thomas, except they were out of order. And so what he was able to do within about three or four days is by parsing the, the phrases on the Gospel of Jesus' wife, he was more or less able to determine that every single, that you could basically compose the entirety of the Gospel of Jesus' wife by cutting sort of or cherry picking phrases from the Gospel of Thomas and then putting them in a new order on the gospel of Jesus' wife, sort of to say something new that sounded like something old. And the only words that you, one could not extract from the gospel of Thomas 
were the Coptic words my wife. And so that was that was like a real breakthrough. The, the, it looked like this this was sort of a cut and paste job. Someone who who knew enough Coptic to be able to sort of reverse engineer a, a Coptic text, possibly from an English translation or uh, of of the Gospel of Thomas. So that was sort of the first big breakthrough in the scholarly um, detective story. Mm, that's fascinating. So okay, so then this how does this breakthrough? cut through the noise of, you said it's kind of crowdsourcing. Is it that there's a small group of people, you know, did Professor Watson send this to a small group of colleagues or how he, did that kind of start to spread? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So I think he initially, Dr. Watson initially posted it on his own website and then it got circulated by other scholars, including uh, Dr. Mark Goodacre, another New Testament scholar whose, whose blog, uh, NT blog, mm-hmm. served as kind of a forum for, for a lot of the debate uh, over the, the gospel of Jesus' wife. So it sort of made it out that way. And then I think the, the, the next real breakthrough was, so you have this initial thesis that, you know, this is a cut and paste from the gospel of Thomas. Well, people said, you know, that's a little too easy because, you know, that presumes forgery and then works backward to tr- prove it. And that's not good enough. And so the next real breakthrough comes with an independent scholar, a guy working out of his basement in Portland, Oregon, has an, has only a master's degree from Oxford, really smart guy, never never held a job as, as an academic, but but it has this really good nose for detail and 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 has always been on always been interested in sort of what's going on in online big biblical scholarship. And because he's paying attention to the kinds of things that everybody's posting online about biblical scholarship and various idiosyncratic translations of you know, uh, non-canonical texts that are popping up uh, all over the internet. He starts looking at this uh, papyrus scrap. His name is Andrew Bernhardt. I hadn't mentioned that. He starts looking at the papyrus scrap, and he's like, he's noticing that there's there's some of the Coptic, clearly the Coptic is coming from the Gospel of Thomas, but there's, there's, there's a kind of like a typo. There's a place where something isn't perfectly transcribed from the Gospel of Thomas, like a, a, a certain letter is missing. And it strikes him that, that there is this, there's really only one sort of internet translation or interlinear translation of the, gospel, of the Coptic Gospel of Thomas that exists online. And so an interlinear translation, some of your readers may be familiar with this, some people like to use it in Bible study. It's a translation in which you have one line of scripture in its original text, whether it's Greek or Coptic, and then immediately below it or above it, you'll have the same line in translation. And sometimes it's like you'll see word for word what Greek word or what Coptic word connects to what English word. So Andrew Bernard's aware that there's exactly one Coptic version of, interlinear version of the Gospel of Thomas that exists online. And he goes to that that version of the Gospel of Thomas. It's a PDF that a computer programmer, hobbyist, biblical scholar living in Michigan, posted online back in 2002. And he goes to it and he notices that this PDF that this, that this guy puts up has the same typo as the, uh, the, the Gospel of Jesus' wife. Mm-hmm. So this, this typo does not exist in the actual Gospel of Thomas. This computer programmer living in, living in Michigan did had a transcription error in his typescript, of a Coptic typescript. And somehow this transcription error recurs in the Gospel of Jesus' wife. So that's really the first sort of smoking gun. that, And it's that, not a common kind of... Error. It's not a common. It's not a common kind of error. It's, it's so unusual that it really is hard not to connect those two. It's hard not to precisely. Right? It's. I mean, it's not. Okay. It's not sort of. I wouldn't say it was the, the the final nail in the coffin, but it was. 
It was a, it was a very clean shot. Um, oh, the the hammer is up in the air and the nail's about to go in. That's we're getting closer. We're getting closer. Point. It's All not right, enough, yeah. but that was the first real. It's it's not only to say well well where did this come from, but what source, what what twenty first century source material might a forger have consulted to produce the Gospel of Jesus's wife. Mm. Did you know Fast-Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast-Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. What's going on, everyone? This is Leroy from Atlanta, Georgia. One of my favorite things about the Bible for Normal People podcast is that for the first time in my life, I don't feel pressure to fit everything into a narrative like I used to. And as a result, the Bible has become even more alive to me. And I truly believe it's allowed me to be more compassionate and loving to people. So if any of this sounds enticing or interesting, then please go to patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people. And for just as little as $1 per month, you can become a member. One of my favorite perks about being a member is the access to exclusive discussions from Pete, Jared, and the rest of the producers group. And speaking of the producers group, I want to thank John C. Bruss, Sean Michael Phillips, Britt Miracle, Dorsey Marshall, Scott Goldman, Esther Getz, Becky Davenport, and Ed. This podcast wouldn't exist without the support of people like you. Now let's get back to the discussion. So then what was that nail in the coffin? Is there a third big piece that came out? Yeah, so the, the, the next big piece uh, concerns another fragment of papyrus that, that was provided to Dr. Karen King by the same anonymous collector. 
And that was a fragment of the Gospel of John. Karen King had referred to it sort of obliquely in some of her talks, but she also, she also never released a photograph of it. People just assumed, well, okay, the Gospel of John bit, that's gotta be authentic. Clearly this guy, this, for, this collector, what he, was, what he was probably trying to do was by sort of associating this one sensational papyrus, papyrus with other sort of legitimate, authentic papyri, he was kind of creating kind of an aura of, of legitimacy. And sure. Sure, yeah. yeah. I mean, the Gospel of John, yeah, it's got to be real. That, no problem. The thing is, when the, uh, the first images came out of the Gospel of John, and they weren't from, from Dr. King, they were from uh, a, some scientists who were conducting ink, ink tests who just put out the images in a sort of informal report, scholars took a look at the Gospel of John, and within about an hour, <laughs> they noticed that every <laughs> single one of the 17 line breaks in this papyrus fragment mirrored a line break in another online transcript of the Coptic Gospel of John. So it was essentially hmm. the same MO. It was someone who had access to the internet, someone knew who to where to look for online editions of Coptic, of authentic Coptic papyri, and then essentially mimicked them, hoping that nobody would notice. And a scholar named Christian Askland has his PhD from Cambridge, who at the time was associated with the, uh, the, the Museum of the Bible, run by the evangelical green family owners of hobby lobby he was he was part of their scholars initiative he notices right away that this this thing is a, a sort of 100 ripoff of this very easily accessible pdf another pdf online of the coptic of john and and like instantaneously like every single scholar in the world was like yeah this gospel of john there's there's zero question that it's a forgery okay and, and so what scholars, you know, now have is that they have a, a, like a 100% forgery in the pre presence of a very dubious, likely forgery. And when you have like more than one, when you have the same collector who's presenting you one like outright forgery and one very dubious manuscript, and that second manuscript isn't basically has the same handwriting as the the, the definite forgery, that that presents a real problem. Mm -hmm. um, that's where it's, that was sort of the the, the lay of the land at the point at which sort of I come back into the story three years after Karen King's announcement in Rome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so can we, can we let's, let's stop there for a second, because sure. I want to go back to say, where was the breakdown in Karen? Because so there's this interesting uh, story about a potential forgery, but you have this pretty eminent scholar yeah, how did it happen? who right. is presenting this at a conference well before this stuff happens. How did it like, what would be the normal process to make sure that this thing doesn't happen, and why wasn't that followed in this case? I mean, that's a really good question and something I break down in a lot of detail um, through my investigative reporting in the book. A lot of, the, a lot of that process um, it, people are going to read about for the first time in the book and happy to go over some of it here. You know, the, the, the way in academia, the, the, the way that this works is, is the process of peer review. And, if, and peer review um, typically is, is double-blind. That means that the author of the article, a paper for a journal, um, doesn't know who's going to be peer-reviewing their article, and the peer reviewers don't know who the author is. And that allows sort of the free exchange of information and free of fear or favor. Um, and, you know, Dr. King had submitted her article to the Harvard Theological Review. It's a preeminent journal in the field, peer-reviewed journal. And the editors of the peer review are also Harvard Divinity School professors. Um, some, some might argue that that sort of in itself is sort of a conflict of interest because you have co colleagues at the same institution editing other colleagues' work, but it's not unprecedented. And the Harvard Theological Review editors send out uh, Dr. King's article to three peer reviewers. And two out of the three peer reviewers come back with 
unfavorable reviews, essentially saying you would be very embarrassed uh, to publish this, you know, number one. Number two, there are numerous tells of forgery, you know, everything ranging from the handwriting to the grammar to the um, copying from Gospel of Thomas to the very suspicious fact that the anonymous owner is not named anywhere. So, you you know, the peer reviewers, and at the time they were anonymous, I'm, I'm able to, to identify them through the investigative reporting, they spoke to me um, for the book. But, you know, they, they the Harvard Theological Review did the right thing in sending uh, Dr. King's article pre-publication and pre-her announcement to the very top scholars in the world. These are secular scholars. You know, these aren't like people associated with the Vatican, people who sort of had an agenda one way or the other about canonical versus non-canonical gospels. These are the top scholars at secular universities who are sort of the all-in-one experts in Coptic in the so-called Gnostic gospels or non-canonical gospels and in the manuscripts on which they are written. These aren't sort of, you know, hacks. And they come back, two out of the three come back and say, don't, basically don't, don't do this. So that the, so the, the immediate effect of that is that the Harvard Theological Review says, sorry, Dr. King, we are not going to be able to publish this right away, and we're going to need a little more homework on this, essentially. You're going to need to do some scientific testing. And one of the things Dr. King did not do before the public announcement was any scientific testing. And that's sort of, that also raised a lot of questions is why not, why not do a little bit of scientific testing to see whether you know, the papyrus is old enough, to see whether the ink is authentic, those kinds of things. So the Harvard Theological Review was, was, was spooked enough by these early reviews to, to say, you know, let's, let's, let's hit the pause button here. Let's take a little bit more time. Although, having said that, Dr. King did not feel that, that, that she, should, she should sort of wait on the announcement. She felt that, I think she felt in, in, her, in her words that, you know, if she didn't sort of make it public, that it would leak out and she'd rather just sort of put it out there. So that's sort of how it got into the public domain, even though you had two really big peer reviewers saying, don't do it. But she put it out there not as here's a possible, you know, a text that we might have to consider. She, she, did she put it out there as more – at least a demonstrable proof that there was a community of Christians yeah. who assumed that Jesus had a wife? Well, this was this was the question, you know, again, before any of this really hit. I, I Again, I went up to Harvard about a, you know, two or three weeks before uh, her public presentation, and I asked her just this question because I think the – actually, very interesting timing. Bizarre coincidence, as a reporter, I was glad I was there to sort of record the, the, how it sort of – went down, but I, I met her for dinner like the night after she she just got back one of these really tough peer reviews. And she was clearly shaken. And, you know, I said, look, I mean, what what is it going to, I mean, will, are you going to sort of wait and do some more testing? Like, what are the chances you're going to go forward in Rome? Like, are you, a, are you willing to go forward on like a 50-50% confidence that it's accurate? Like 70-30? Like, what's your sort of, what's the threshold of confidence you need in its authenticity? And she's like, oh, no, no, no. I mean, 50-50 wouldn't cut it. 70-30 doesn't cut it. It has to be a very, very, very high threshold of confidence. And so I guess, you know, the question that, that one wonders now is like, how did, she, how did she sort of reach that level of very, very high level of confidence in spite of these um, negative reviews? And I think what, what, Karen, what Dr. King would tell you is that, well, you know, she, cons she consulted uh, like a, lingu a linguist who told her that, you know, essentially that the, some of the critiques that one of the peer reviewers raised, um, you know, they, they were legitimate, but if she put a little bit more language or of accounting for them in her article, she'd be okay. And I think she went to people whose, whose um, views would, she had a sense would, would support her position. And there, were, there weren't many, but there were some. 
and she went to them and sort of and then sort of addressed the peer reviews in a revision of the article. And I think in her mind, she had addressed the criticism of, of the peer reviewers. Yeah. So, you know, I can't help but draw parallels to today where we crowdsource all kinds of truths politically and otherwise. And it just, it kind of spooks me to say, here's someone who was steeped in the process, who knew the value of it, who said, I would need to be 80%, 90% confident before I spoke before a panel about this finding and had this feeling, apparently she had a feeling that she was, had a high degree of confidence kind of skipped over a few steps in the process. And then it just like, what hope do we have for kind of having these gut feelings and being right when there is this clear process for truth finding? And I would just be curious, what did you learn through this process as a journalist looking in at mm. another field's process of truth finding? Mm. What did you learn about truth and, and accuracy and that sort of thing? Look, I don't know. I would never claim to have all the answers. And that's a big, big question. But I think one of the things that fascinated me as a larger theme was what, what do we mean by, by what, is, what does truth mean in the context of religion? That was sort of a, a big question um, that I was sort of wrestling with just as a journalist, someone who's, who's interested in, in how different, different groups of, of professionals and believers uh, understand the nature of truth. And as a as a journalist, I really I'm I, I'm I guess an empiricist in the sense that I believe that there are facts out there. I believe that you know picking up the phone, talking to people, looking at historical records, talking to people who are experts in their field, you know, knocking on doors. That that there's a process one can follow to arrive at, at a sort of a set of verifiable facts. You know, we may not always get their facts wrong. We may have we may have to co- make some corrections along the way. But ultimately, we're moving in the direction of of, of a, obtaining a set of sort of discernible factual reality. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, people of faith, certainly people of devout faith, don't, don't always, you know, in their own lives, in their own spiritual lives, certainly, don't always need to have scientific proof for certain kinds of truth. That, that, that's what faith is, right? You, mm-hmm. you take things sort of sight unseen because you believe that there's sort of a higher power that's a kind of guarantor of, of certain uh, truths. And then there's another category that I, that I would put uh, Dr. King and, and, and many other scholars in. In fact, I studied this myself in college, of, of a kind of a, a postmodern approach to truth. And, and postmodernists don't, don't believe in the idea of, of a, an objective reality, that essentially that we all have our own truths and that the, the I mean, the sort of simple, it's a little bit of a simple, simplified way of putting it, but that whatever group has sort of the, the power to, to tell and sell the best narrative creates reality, that re- reality doesn't exist independently of our of language, so that when we speak, when we tell a story, that's the reality, there's nothing sort of independent of that. And it's an important sort of, I, I think as, as, a, as a means of interpreting literature, as a means of interpreting, interpreting literary text, it's, there's, a, there's value in it, because it's true that, you know, one person reading a gospel text in, you know, the sixth century may read it in a completely different way than someone reading it today, and that's okay. Like, you can go to that same text and draw some completely different meanings from it. And on some level, each of those meanings, at least in my view, is valid. I think what's dangerous is when, when a, a, the, a sort of theoretical way of encountering texts is also used for historical investigation. So, yes, are there many, many meanings one can draw from a, a Bible verse? Certainly. They mean, it means different things to different peoples and different contexts and different parts of the world. That's great. Um, where, I, where, where I think folks get into trouble is when they use that same approach of we all have our own truths to whether a papyrus fragment is genuinely ancient 
or not. I think there's only one answer. It's either ancient yeah. or it isn't. Right. Um, yeah. It's either this fragment is either part of a larger page of a an ancient codex or it wasn't. And I think there's a little bit of slippage, and I think that that comes across towards the end of the book when I when I try to figure out how these different ways of knowing, how the way journalists and, and many scholars approach history, the way people of faith think about the nature of truth, and then the way you know postmodern theorists conceptualize truth. And then what happens when these different ways of truth-seeking sort of collide in the same institution, and then sometimes even in the same individual. And I think that the, the, one of the things that, that struck me was Harvard Divinity School as an institution. Harvard is the only, I believe, it's the only one of the elite sort of schools that where there is not a freestanding Department of Religious Studies on campus. So right. all you've got is the Divinity School, and the Divinity School essentially um, is where all the expertise in religious studies lies. But the Divinity School also has a mission of training ministers. And there have been many scholars, sort of new, new recruits to the Divinity School, have been, who have been very uncomfortable with that mix, that, that the pursuit of theological truths needs to be separated from sort of the secular investigation of what people do when they, when they talk about um, religion. So, you know, one of the, we've, we've kind of, a, we talk about different kinds of truth on this podcast, and we talk about uh, like fact truths versus meaning truths. Mm -hmm. And that meaning truth is more relational. It usually has, you know, human beings and how we Correct. interpret things. And then we have these fact truths that you are talking about as the object of historical or journalistic endeavors. Whenever you're dealing with history, though, this would be a question to not maybe dive too far into this question of how we know, but it seems like historical and journalistic endeavors aren't the same thing, though, as like science, which is these repeatable experiments that you can get the same phenomenon over and over again. It's almost like there's a the process, what we mean by truth, I'm just testing this, you can tell me what I think, what you yeah. think, but like as a journalist, it's almost like, and, and as these peer reviews with Karen King, it's like what counts as historical truth is the outcome of this pretty sophisticated process that we've developed over many, many years, in some cases centuries. And what we mean by truth is the outcome uh, that can keep changing as we put new things through this process, but the process is extremely crucial and, and almost inextricable from what we mean by truth. And so, right. it seems like Karen didn't follow the process, and so it, it makes dubious the outcome. You can be accidentally right but that doesn't mean it's necessarily true in this sort of process-oriented way. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, it does. And I, th I think really that's that's where you want to you want to place the focus is is you know are the established pro the, the processes established by your field you know right. whether it's as a journalist um, or a historian which uh, Dr. Karen King is do you follow have those the, the, have this sort of you know time-tested process of like investigating sources judging the credibility of evidence using all the various tools at your disposal. To, to, to investigate, did you follow the process? And then if you follow the process and you get it wrong, it happens to all of us. Then you go back and you try again. But where the process has been, I think what happened in this case is that there were, there were places where the process wasn't adhered to and there was, there was corner cutting and there was a little bit too much speed. And, and I mean, there was no reason, for instance, uh, Dr. King could have, couldn't have waited you know, another few months to announce this. She, you know, she attends and her colleagues attend many biblical studies conferences, but but she really wanted to announce this at the Coptic conference, which which in this year happened to be in you, Rome. You know, but the question is why though? I mean, I'm I'm asking somewhat rhetorically because I'm not. I mean, from where I sit 
And by the way, this goes beyond Dr. Karen King. This is like an issue, I think, in the humanities in scholarship. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure – I mean, I could interpret what she did not on the basis of an ideology, mm -hmm. a postmodern ideology, just a territorialism. Like, I, if I don't do this, somebody else is going to get wind of it and they're going to publish it first. And my, yeah, this I mean, might be because nothing new happens in this field. <laughs> nothing new happens. I mean, I, I'm a biblical scholar. Nothing. Ha we just keep taking the same pieces and maneuvering around a little bit. But if you have this, the only thing new is what you find in the ground. You know, whether it's a manuscript right. or a building or a statue or a piece of pottery or, or, or something. And, you know, you can get carried away, you know, hopeful that you've got something actually new that can make a mark in the field. And maybe you're sort of blinded to that. I mean, the, the process that Jared's talking about, you're blinded to that. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I, that, I mean, journalists worry about this all the time. It's called getting scooped, and no one likes getting scooped. Right. I, don't, I don't think in this case that Dr. King worried about getting scooped. I mean, she was the only one who had possession of it. And, and it wasn't so much that she worried that someone else would, would have it. I think that the collector, who I imagine we'll talk about in a little bit, the collector was very, very happy that Harvard was going to be the sort of launching pad or, you know, the rocket ship launching pad for this little fragment because there's no university that's going to get more media attention than Harvard. And so there, there wasn't an issue of him um, sort of like snatching it back from her and saying, no, if you wait a few months, I'm going to give it to Princeton or something, or I'm going to give it to, you know, some little college that you've never heard of. I think he was very pleased and would have waited as long as, as, as necessary. Mm -hmm. I think in this case, you know, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I'd really like to leave it to readers to sort of parse the evidence in the book. And I, I'm, I'm careful not to, I think we can never really look, uh, you know, into someone else's heart or into their soul. You, you know, we have to, we gather a certain amount of evidence in, in what's, what's happening in their, their environment and about, you know, who they are as people, what their values are. And then I think it's really, I want readers to have that sense of discovery and, and to sort of make those judgments for themselves. Like, what might have motivated Dr. King to, to sort of move maybe a little too quickly on this, to, to, to override maybe even her better judgment when so much of her scholarship in the past it had not been the subject of this kind of scrutiny? A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. 
Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Yeah, so, and not to get too far afield, but have you, you know, I can just see so many lessons here for... I think I mentioned this in the already as we've been talking, but you know, in our modern day, and, and when we think about truth, we think we can just kind of Google something or watch a YouTube video and and come to the truth of it because it quote makes sense to us. And I just reading through your book and and flipping through it and, and kind of getting the pieces, I just kept thinking like there are these established processes for truth finding and. You know, what would you say to everyday people? Like, do you know of like tools or resources from a journalist perspective? Like, if you want to think like a journalist and understand what it is to get truth in our field, what's something that everyday people could maybe learn? Because I think we could all get some of these tools. Well, I mean, I'll be honest. I think it's the sort of tools that a lot of us learn in, you know, even in grade school, which is you have to have evidence and and you have to have corroboration. So it's not it's not enough to simply have one person tell you something or to have, you know, to, to take the, you know, to take the word of, in this case, the collector who presented Karen King with a papyrus, he told her a story about where it came from, um, which she never investigated. And, and I think that, you know, you have to have, and this is true of, of good journalism and the best newspapers do this every day, which is why it sickens me when people use the term fake news, because the best journalists and this, and I think most journalists follow these sorts of protocols, which is if someone comes to you with a sensational claim, you have to vet it, um, which means you have to find out whether you can corroborate it with other people, whether you can corroborate it with other sources. You have to leave the office. You can't just sort of Google it. You have to go to archives. You have to knock on doors. You know, if you're able to knock on doors, call people up and, and make sure that there's like multiple overlapping confirming evidence from live if possible from living people so it's easy to tell to sort of to tell a lie and get people really excited about something that they've always wanted to be true so you have to almost resist that like when someone comes to you with something like oh my god this is this is this is perfect this is this is exactly what i've been saying my whole life that's precisely the moment where in the back of your head you should be going wait a second i'm really excited about this give me you know i need to just take a breather here sleep on it and now i need to now i need to sort of go to go back to the process and that process has to be confirmation, validation, documents, evidence, multiple overlapping pieces of evidence 
for the claim that, that one one is going to sort of put into the world. So going going back, you talked about the forger in this case. We didn't talk a lot about that character, but maybe say a little bit about that. But but maybe I'd be curious if you could end that with what were some of the things that maybe Karen could have done or even learned from a journalist to to help her figure out earlier on that this was a forgery. Yeah, to not do that. To not even go down that road. And I won't even, I think this is goes really much, much beyond uh, Dr. King. Um, right. There, there is now exactly. sort of a, yeah. an, awake, there's a, an awakening in the field of biblical studies and in archaeology. Archaeology was probably way ahead of everybody else. And, in, and papyrology, which is a study of papyri, that provenance matters. That if you don't know where this a manuscript or an object comes from, then you can be you can be in trouble on multiple fronts. Number one, it could be looted. You know, it could be stolen from a place like Iraq or Egypt. And this is the trouble that the Green family got in trouble. That, uh, that uh, the Green family and mm-hmm. the Hobby Lobby family has gotten into plenty of trouble with at the Museum of the Bible, where they simply did not ask the kinds of hard questions about where are these artifacts coming from that we're going to be putting in our museum. This is an evangelical family. That, you know, this is not sort of. These scammers don't play favorites. They don't care if you're, you know, a patriarchal, evangelical billionaire or a progressive Harvard scholar. They will seek out the thing that you always want to be true, and they will seek to have you acquire it or make it famous. So I just want to make that clear. Like this, this is not about liberal conservative, right, right, evangelical, right. Yep. atheist. Any one of us could could, be, could fall victim to, to these scams. So the question is provenance, chain of ownership. You, if you have to. Um, what scholars are learning is that they have to be able to go back, and and spend time understanding how the do, how the document, how the new sculpture, how the inscription, how the uh, the the you know, the ossuary that you've that you've been given, where wh- who you, trace that back to the moment it came out of the ground, if you can. Who are the previous owners? How, when and how did it exchange hands? And it's not enough to just say, oh, a collector gave me a letter from a previous owner and it says that he owned it. That's not enough. You need to make phone calls. You need to go out into the world. You need to look for other forms of documentation. When all of your information about provenance comes from a single source and that source is vested in having you believe something is true, that's not a good source. It's not a sufficient source. Um, so I think the, 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 the biggest takeaway, and that scholars were already thinking about this, but it's now, I think, post-Gospel of Jesus' Wife, it's something that they're thinking about in, in really serious ways, and they're way smarter people than me on this um, who, who are discussing this. But how do we make sure that we know the origin of, of, of the manuscripts and the sensational objects that are coming our way in a field which, which as you just said, is pretty picked over? There, there are a finite number of texts. People can pick them over, and they do, and they're, and they're you know, at the, I attended the, the Society for Biblical Literature. It's the annual con- largest annual conference of biblical scholars in the world. It attracts 10,000 scholars every year, and they're all picking over a relatively small number of texts. So when a new one comes along, it is extremely exciting. And, you know, for instance, the Gospel of Judas uh, came along a few years. That is, not, that is an authentic, non-canonical text that generated a lot of excitement. That one happened to be authentic, and it was a big deal for for that reason. But to get back to your point, I think the real takeaway is provenance matters. It, it seems so obvious too. Just if you think about it, I'm like, <clears throat> it's like a more intense version of, hey, I have this uh, this outfit from an Elton John concert in the '70s. Like, you would want to trace it back and sort of figure out how how would we know that that's actually where it came from. So it's just more right. intense than that. It makes a lot of sense. Well, yeah, Ariel. Listen, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, there's this is a fascinating book and. Have we even talked about the title yet? 
What's this book that you wrote? Oh, sure. <laughs> the book is called yeah. uh, Veritas. <laughs> what the people want to know. Yeah, Veritas. Yeah. Well, Veritas, uh, the Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus' wife. Um, right. And, you know, Veritas, and Veritas is, is, is the... Is the yeah, Veritas is tied to Harvard. That, that's, Correct. That's it's the Harvard motto. motto. I think it goes yeah, okay. back to 1643. But it, it's not just sort of a casual sort of gimmicky allusion to, to the Harvard name. It actually sort of undergirds the sort of the, the, the biggest, what I see as the biggest theme in the book, which is how, do, how does one, how do different people go about truth-seeking? And, and we, haven't, we haven't talked about the, the mystery man who, um, <laughs> who, who presented this fragment to, to Karen King, but a good deal of the book concerns my sort of um, shoe leather investigation into who this gentleman is, his backstory, and I hope that, that, that readers really find that to be kind of a gripping uh, detective story because he's an absolutely fascinating figure. Yeah, we may, in the intro, we may uh, add that little description you gave us just to tantalize people because we were, <laughs> I'm disappointed we don't have time to get into it. It's yeah. super interesting. Yeah. Um, well, that's it. And, you know, it's, it, it, we don't need to, you know, we don't need to give away all the spoilers, right? So, exactly. Uh, that's right. Make them buy it. Make them buy it. No problem. Yeah. Excellent. Well, is, there people, is, there, is there a way people can find you online if they want to connect more or keep following your writings uh, as you have other things that come out? Yeah, sure. So my, my website is, is uh, com. So that's my name is spelled A-R-I-E-L-S-A-B-A-R. You know, I'm on Twitter as well as at, at R-E-L Sabar and on Facebook. But the website's a really great way to keep up with, with what's going on and, and um and, and with the book and with other uh, magazine stories that I, I, I write from time to time. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was just a topic that it took a different slant than our normal topics, but it's so relevant to what we talk about every week on the podcast. So thank you so much. Thanks. It was, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Ariel. Appreciate it. All right, normal people, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you have a chance, again, pick up Ariel Sabar's book, Veritas, A Harvard Professor, A Con Man, and the Gospel of Jesus' Wife. Good read. And you know what? Before you go, we just wanted to remind you, and maybe we're just coming to this on our own. We're coming into our own here and recognizing at the end of the day, the Bible for Normal People is more than a podcast. We have at least 100, maybe 150 videos now up on Patreon that explores all kinds of questions uh, related to the things that we talk about here on the podcast. Um, so Pete, myself, uh, are putting up videos every week. So that in itself is worth maybe a visit to Patreon. So go to uh, patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people where you can check out uh, those videos. We also have a Slack group with several hundred people who are talking about the impact of these kinds of questions on their everyday life and what it means for church and belonging and community. Uh, so and we to, learn a lot from that Slack group. Yeah. I mean, there, yeah. we've got some really, really nice, smart people, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We also sell baked goods. You, you didn't mention that. We do not sell baked goods. That's false advertising. Oh, I thought um, we were going to. Okay. No, no, My, no. I read that wrong. I read the memo wrong. <laughs> we could oh, maybe we sell, sell merchandise. We can sell more. Yeah, we do sell merchandise. Yeah. yeah. Awesome um, t-shirts and onesies. Just go to patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people where you can find more about how to connect with the community here at the Bible for normal people. All right, folks. See ya. Thanks as always to our team. Producer Megan Kamick, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, marketing and administration Reed Lively, and transcriptionist Stephanie Spate. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. 